Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyover Labs. This is uh, Dave Cruz from uh, Madison, Wisconsin. And today we have Paul Grangard with us. And Paul is the CEO of the premier dress shoe company, uh, Allen Edmonds. And so Paul has helped turn around Allen Edmonds. And we're lucky enough that Paul agreed to come on the show and tell us more about that and his background. So it's, it's a great story and I'm excited to learn more about it. Paul, thanks for uh, coming on the show. You're welcome, Dave. It's my pleasure. Thank you for asking. Hey, definitely. And uh, so let's start off. Can you tell us a little bit more about your uh, background and then eventually how you became CEO of Allen Edmonds? My exposure to shoes goes back a long way, although most people didn't know it. Uh, during the first 25 years of my career, I studied in Florence, Italy in college in 1979, and in those days you could walk up and down the streets of Florence and occasionally pass pass a true leather working shop. You could smell the leathers. All the stuff that was sold in the markets was actually made very closely nearby. There are rumors now that a lot of that stuff that you can buy in the street from the street vendors is no longer Italian-made, but it's hard to tell. Um but I fell in love with design, architecture, all the things that you pick up when you're in Italy. I was uh, very much excited and and uh, enthusiastic about my time there. Came back, um, started working in the banking industry where everybody wore the same black calfskin shoes to work. <laughs> and I, I noticed that early on. In fact, uh, when I was trying to get some advice from my dad, who was a banker in Minneapolis, about what bank to go work at, I commented to him that the New York bankers all seemed to wear the exact same shoes. And, um, I didn't have those shoes, so I didn't know if I'd fit in. <laughs> so anyway, I started my started my career in Chicago, where it turned out, ultimately, I, those same shoes were uh, pretty prevalent after a while anyway. But um, And I worked in finance. I worked in Europe again for three years uh, in the mid-80s, this time in Germany, which also has less consistently than Italy, but a lot of great fashion and, and a strong leather culture, leather working history with some other great brands. And um, came home to Minneapolis in 1986 and worked in uh, investment banking for the next 15 years and then worked in uh, running the retail brokerage business at the same firm where I had been an investment banker. Piper Jaffrey, headquartered Minneapolis for four years, and then I did uh, private equity for three years for the firm that bought Allen Edmonds in the second year I was there, and in the third year I was there, the CEO of Allen Edmonds, who had taken over when we bought the company from the owner CEO, um, decided to leave us and go to something else, and I jumped in as interim CEO and uh, gelled well with the team that was there and really enjoyed what I was doing and it brought back this affinity that I had had so long ago um, brought it to the fore I should say because uh, I was basically spent 30 years in a focus group for our target core customers <laughs> so that's that's how I ended up staying and it's been eight years since it's been a lot of fun interesting and what uh, what, what what type of jobs did you have in the banking world like what was your first job that you started out with well, I was a trainee for two and a half years in Chicago, rotating through different parts of the bank, so they would teach us all about the various functions in commercial banking. But I uh, was heavily involved in the energy industry team there, you know, as a junior grunt at the time. But uh, I learned an awful lot, and I was going to business school at night. 
at the University of Chicago's night business program. I took my last final on a Thursday, and on Saturday morning, uh, the bank moved me to Frankfurt, Germany, where I called on huh. Volkswagen and the German subsidiaries of Dow Chemical and Hush Puppies, another shoe company, and some uh, some other great American companies that that had German uh, offices, and then some other trading houses in Hamburg uh, in in um, as part of my uh, responsibilities. Truth be told, we weren't very competitive. The Japanese were lending money below the cost of funds for most American banks, or at least right at it, and they were dominating the uh, lending environment at that time. The big Japanese banks, which ultimately created their credit crisis in Japan, but drove a lot of uh, other banks out of business in the 1970s and 80s. So um, they closed down the Frankfurt office a year after I left, and I'm trying not to take that personally. <laughs> That's right. And uh, and so how did your investment banking experience help, you know, with your role at Allen Edmonds? And um, you know, did, was it, did you work on a, a number of deals in different industries, or what did you kind of work on? I was a consumer-focused okay. investment banker, and the majority of my work was either with food companies – um, many of which have some of the greatest brands uh, in the world, very familiar brands, and also with restaurants, which is where um, there was a big change in casual dining going on when I was a restaurant investment banker. So there was a lot of action in the investment banking business. Companies going public all the time. I worked with a bunch of names you would know. Applebee's was one of our best clients. Um, you know, just so much was happening there. Buca de Bipat. Uh, Beppo was a company that I helped get started and formed and ultimately uh, go public. Morton's, just a lot of different uh, types of casual and formal dining restaurant chains were getting started in those days, and they were a bit of a, a darling of the investor community. So it was uh, a good time to be working with them. Interesting. In terms of how that helped, in terms of how that helped me, I learned an awful lot about brand building, about the importance of knowing who your target customer is and what you're trying to do for them, about the idea that uh, restaurants are actually entertainment as well as food providers, and the same can be true today about retailing. It's it's a whole experience. It's not just a uh, transaction that's going on in retailing stores. So I, I learned a lot about customer service uh, in those days and the importance of treating your customers right and treating your employees right, that the uh, the companies with the highest morale tend to get the highest scores from their customer uh, from their customers for oh. the quality of the customer service. So the importance of treating your employees right, too, also came through in those days. And then I learned a bunch of arcane things about financing and uh, valuation that uh, are important as a CEO, too. Interesting. What, what was uh, What's one of those arcane archaic things you uh, you learned or something that around valuation yeah um it it it's all fundamental but you know businesses yeah. as they say not brain surgery <laughs> uh, and it's it's one of those things when you learn it you wonder why you didn't understand it just kind of as common sense beforehand but um the relation be between a growth rate of a company from both the revenue and also it may be different from a profitability point of view and the multiple of earnings that uh, is the 
because of the valuation, or you know, valuations tend to be earnings times some multiple, and those multiples vary depending on how fast a company's growing, what's the quality of the earnings. You know, those are the kinds of things that uh, you only you'll, it's easy to understand the concept, but until you've actually worked with it, gotten your hands dirty, um, you, you don't really have a great feel for what it what it truly means. Yeah, that's a good point. When you see, we have seen those matrices, a matrix showing you know growth versus profit, and then a multiple, and the impact that growth has on the valuation is just uh, it's pretty uh, pretty amazing. It can be, especially if you're growing quite quickly. I, mean, I guess that's why some of those high flying tech companies get those huge uh, valuations, because in theory they're growing quite quickly. Yeah. Um, yep. So it looks good, at least on paper. <laughs> Um, can they keep up is the question, but, right. um, right. yeah. So, but I also would, oh. would say this is, uh, if I could add, as I got into management, um, actually there are two things that I often talk about to business school classes that I will share with you. Number one, when you work in banking or consulting or accounting or even law, you get to go from company to company to company and it's a little bit like a constant case study opportunity when you're in those kinds of roles because you you see different companies, you get a feel for who's well-managed, who's maybe not as well-managed, what part of management is particularly strong at different companies, and you, and you become hyper-focused on the differences between companies. And it's easy for, I found actually, with a lot of CEOs, that if they'd grown up in the same company, they maybe were very deep in their own business and uh, its strengths and weaknesses, but didn't know that much about competitors. And one of the things I brought to Alan Edmonds was an intense focus on where we fit in the competitive spectrum, who our competitors are, what they're doing, and uh, their strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, I go back to my experience floating around the restaurant industry and the food industry uh, as a reason why I had that drive and understanding. And then the um, other thing I learned in the investment banking business is about how to manage a team of partners as opposed to how to manage a hierarchy. And we're very much a team of partners here at Allen Evans now. I've got great people. They know a lot of things I don't know. Uh, I can pull out of them things that uh, that is helpful to the whole organization. They work well together. We, we have basically a roundtable's partner type of manage, management structure here, and it's way different than it was before here, and it's, it was key to our success in turning the business around and now almost tripling it. Oh, wow. Okay, well, let's get into that. So what was the, I mean, you, you, that's a good lead. Um, what was the state of Al Edmonds when you first came, and that was that in 2008 when you became CEO? Yes, right, yeah. We were no longer able to cover our interest expense, which, but that was not an uncommon situation. So our lenders were very patient. They they weren't pushing us into bankruptcy. They were pushing us into a recapitalization when I arrived. Um, You know, if if things had been going well all around us, they might have had the time to push us into bankruptcy, but instead it was more efficient and expedient for them to work with us on our recapitalization and also to work with a private equity holder that uh, that had uh, ownership at the time and was willing to put in the new capital that was required to recapitalize our entire balance sheet. So um, 
that was the situation. Our sales were headed towards a run. We were at a run rate that was literally over 30% below the run rate of the time of the purchase of the company in 2006. So when you lose 30% of your business in a manufacturing operation with, you know, the kind of margins we have in our business, that's, that's really tough. So that was the situation. Um, Customers were not happy as well as the financial side. We had alienated uh, a significant amount of that core customer base that I had spent 25 years in the midst of, and um, we needed to fix that as well. Interesting. And did you and did you disclose the your revenue at that time? I I know you guys are private, so I didn't know if you uh, disclosed it or not. Yeah, we we were. It was disclosed we were doing a little over 90 when Fulner Home bought it, and uh, you know the run rate had dropped down to the low 60s, although we never did a whole year at that run rate because we started in late 08 to turn things around, and even though 09 was the worst year in the um, Great Recession and was really a Great Depression for our core customer base of accountants, bankers, lawyers, business leaders, other professionals... um, we, we were able to turn it around and, and stop the hemorrhaging so that we did about seventy two seventy three million in 2009. Okay, and and before we get into kind of all the stuff that you you did to help turn around, what, what's the current state? So you see, you said you almost tripled revenue since uh, 2008? Actually, uh, I'm going to have to leave that where it is because I'm not allowed to talk about it. Oh, fair enough. Uh, our, all right. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. So you'll have to piece those pieces <laughs> together. All right, fair enough. Um. That sounds good. And uh, all right, so let's talk about, you know, when you first came in, you know, you've had your investment in bank, banking experience or private equity experience. You know, how at first 100 days or that first, uh, you know, many days, what did you do to try to get your, your arms around the situation, Alan Edmonds, and kind of make a, a roadmap for the future? What did you all look at? Well, first of all, we had, as anybody in that situation would, we had costs we need to take out. So we did have to do a layoff. Uh, we didn't do as big a layoff as we, as the financials said we should because we didn't want to lose um, shoemaking capacity and, uh, you know, capability. So we were, um, we had to stay, we couldn't go as lean as maybe the numbers said we should because we didn't want to, lose that kind of hard to replace shoemaking talent. Um, we, uh, re, as I said, we did the recapitalization, which took a lot of the first hundred days. And, and then most important thing I brought was a renewed strong focus on the idea that it's all about our product and, um, it's having the right kind of product for our core customer base. And, having it at the level of quality people expect from Alan Edmonds and coming up with a product development process that would allow us to continue to keep fresh our core product line and ultimately, which we've done now, expand beyond the core dress shoe product line that had made us famous for 90 years. So, um, you know, we really got down to focus on product quality, focus on new product development, focus on our core customers. And then there were things about our operation with respect to our own retailing stores that actually, um, you know, the 
what most people would assume is that you treat your own retailing stores better than you treat external partners. But we were so concerned about making our wholesale partners happy that we we allowed our own retailing stores to to pale by comparison, and and we needed to bring the quality of our own retailing efforts up significantly from where they were at that time. And then, um, you know, there were management techniques. One was building this roundtable culture. Another was building a strong amount of communication across the company. Uh, we worked hard to, to build morale, even during dark days, and, uh, and a team spirit. And, um, and I uh, did all that in a management philosophy and technique that I would pass on to anyone. I had learned from a friend, colleague, and former boss at Piper Jeffrey called the Six Key Commitments. I would encourage anybody, even from a college graduate point of view, you're in Madison there, to think about what are my five, six, seven key commitments in life. And when you run a company, it's what are your six key commitments for the company. So the first one that we needed to fix was the quality of our leadership team and how much they worked together. Uh, So the first one I brought was strong, decisive, team-oriented leadership. Uh, The second one was superior quality products and service. Um, We were short on both of those at the time. Number three was balanced dedication to both wholesale and retail. And as I said, counterintuitively, that meant bringing our own retail up to snuff. Number four I mentioned, which was um, laser focus on our market positioning and on the competition. And the the fifth one was, and sixth, these last two were more cultural. We'd gotten kind of lethargic, and um, I think people realized that we weren't as committed to excellence as we needed to be, so why put myself out there? If somebody else is going to let us down, I might as well be the first to let us down. So I, I wanted to say that AE people deserve high expectations. I read an article once, 10 years before, that you honor people when you give them high expectations. It's a good thing for a parent to understand, too. Because uh, what's the what's the converse of that? If you give somebody low expectations or mediocre expectations, you're telling them you don't think they can achieve the level of excellence that you need. So we had high expectations, and I want people to know that, so I wanted to pull it out. And the last thing, so I wouldn't scare anyone since I was coming in from the in- investments industry and private equity, you know, uh, and I, as I hope you can tell already, I'm not, not a scary person. Uh <laughs> Uh, was, you know, let's have a positive culture. Let's have a lot of fun together. And that was kind of a weird thing to say in 2008, uh, but um, we've done it. It's um, We have a very upbeat, young, energetic, positive culture, and uh, that takes work. You don't just have that by being friendly and saying hello every day. got to work at it. But it does start with being friendly and saying hello every day. I had a woman uh, who was on our customer service team and I would pass her every day coming in from the office. And finally, I said to her, hey, how are we doing? How am I doing? About two months in, and she said, well, we're doing a lot better now that somebody actually says hello to me on the way to work. <laughs> so, uh, it's a little thing sometimes. Yeah, yeah, never underestimate the quality, the importance of uh, treating people as real people. Interesting. Yeah, those are some uh, great uh, six points. And so... I'm curious, like, you know, it's easy to write those down and tell people, but how did you actually 
implement them and like follow up on it? Like, was it like a, a weekly, you know, like a daily thing that you made sure people were staying on top of, um, or like, especially with your direct reports, like, do you talk about those, all those items a lot or how do you make sure that it, they actually happened? It's eight years later and I still, <laughs> whenever I speak to our employees, I still go through all six of them. Really? Oh, interesting. Okay. Yes. That's number one. Number two is, you know, it, became obvious that we were going to make decisions. Um, that was part of why the team asked me to, to stay. Uh, and the focus on product um, also became very obvious. We restructured our new product development process uh, to make it closer to the customer, closer to the uh, production, actually, and uh, tighten up the teamwork. And, you know, that was pretty obvious. I started personally returning emails to a lot of customers and talking to our customer service people and our retailing team about what kind of customer service we wanted to be known for. I'm very pleased and makes me really glad that I get more emails today about the quality of our customer service than I actually do about our products because people are just so blown away. And that's not a negative on our products. It's just people <laughs> right. are so blown, so blown away by the quality of the people they interact with at our company that they just feel they got to write about it. And um, you know how it's true that people have a much shorter fuse for writing a uh, a note to someone if it's a complaint than they do if it's um, something they want to commend. And so you know, I when I read these, I know that somebody is writing because they were really impressed, not just a little yeah. impressed, really impressed. So I love it. Yeah. It sounds like, uh, like, you, like you kind of mentioned, you're a, a hidden product operations guy your entire life. <laughs> I mean, you really, yeah. You're, you, <laughs> which, but you had great training, right? To, so you stepped in at the right time and, um, yeah, there's a joke we tell since you're in Madison, you know, here in Wisconsin and Minnesota. And, uh, we talked a little earlier off, off the air about, um, my Scandinavian background. So people would always ask me, you know, you spent your career in finance. I mean, how did you know anything about shoes? And the joke is, um, how do you tell the difference between an introverted Scandinavian descendant and an extroverted Scandinavian descendant? How? The extrovert looks at your shoes when he's talking to you. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) So you had a lot of good research over there, like you said. Yeah, that, that's that's a, a good joke for your Lutheran churches, actually. That's good. That's, that's probably good. where I first heard it. Um, that's awesome. And and how, how did you? So when you're you're looking at the entire company, there's lots of different areas you had to improve upon. How like how do you make decisions of how much to spend in certain areas? Areas whether it's like store upgrades or a better e-commerce experience. Um, you know, did you? score each of the areas? Do you have an ROI figure or was it the more qualitative than that? Well, business is a lot about having the right hunches. Uh, it was very unpopular with both our own store managers and with our wholesale accounts when we decided that we would invest heavily in building our e-commerce business. Um, and I would unpack for them the assumption behind it being unpopular. And the assumption was that we had fixed market share for Allen Edmonds and any shoe sold online was a missed sale in some physical environment. And that we just didn't believe that was true. 
And we knew that if we built our e-commerce business, we'd build our brand, we'd build brand awareness, and we'd build demand. And our same-store sales growth has been really strong for the last seven years as a result of also growing our e-commerce business by leaps and bounds. So uh, as Wayne Gretzky uh, once famously (laughs) said, you're going to score more goals if you skate to where the puck is going than if you skate to where it is. So um, we invested heavily in that without a lot of uh, ROI proof because we were starting from almost scratch on our e-commerce site. So it wasn't like we could show what uh, the investment in e-commerce would deliver in terms of return. Now we can tell you what kind of return we're going to have on an email that we send out because of our experience. Um, of course, in our stores, we don't do a store if we don't think it pencils out at a certain level of ROI. We pass on the uh, site if, if that's the case. And um, when it comes to investing in product, we just have this whatever-it-takes kind of mentality because it is all about the product. So uh, if we're not happy with the flow we're getting, then we got to keep working. And, and can you tell us a little bit more about the kind of the product development and manufacturing because I know it's a, a special case at the Allen Edmonds. Well, it's a huge advantage for us. Um, when we get an idea, we usually have a shoe made by our own people right where we're all located together within a week. Wow. So, um, wow. you know, if there isn't somebody who's got to fly over to China and be away from their family for three weeks while they look at prototypes and then come back and try to communicate across the language barrier. We just uh, say, hey, what do you think about this leather and this last and this sole? And, well, I don't know. Let's look. <laughs> Let's try it out. So, uh, so we're both... You know, we, we plan out seasons, we do trend analysis, we've hired a couple of young people to work on our team, both guys and women. We've um, we've got uh, a woman who used to work at a major shoe company and um, is helping us be a lot better about accessing the right trend um, consult, consultants and analysis and and then we put it all together. We come up with a plan, and we decide what we're going to do. But we still also, like we are just this week, did just this last couple of days, looking at what's going well for us and what we think is going well in the marketplace and trying to um, make some changes on the fly as to what we're going to offer for this fall and what we'll even offer yet in May as a result of that, which is something that you know we couldn't do if we didn't have our own production. Wow. And yeah, it sounds like, uh, well, they talk about, well, this isn't fast, you know, the f- fast fashion. It's a little, of course, this is completely different. Yours is more of the, that's sometimes the cheaper items. But the idea is that you can turn on a dime, which is really hard for everyone else with those <laughs> global supply chains. Where, where are your manufacturing locations? Do you have, do you just have one or do you have more than one? We have the, uh, the big plant in Port Washington, then we have another small uh, plant that does a different kind of shoe construction across I-43, uh, also in Port Washington. And then we have a plant in the Dominican Republic that um, makes some cement-lasted shoes. We just came out with a new dredge sneaker. We don't make that kind of shoe in the United States. We we actually have no, don't, don't have the equipment or the experience of shoemakers for that. So we make that down in the DR where... 
um, we can compete at the right price level for that kind of lower quality construction shoe, lower complication, I should say, uh, construction shoe. And uh, we do boat shoes down there and because and, that's another market that when we put U.S. labor into that, try to sell it at U.S. labor prices, we, we don't even, we, you know, we just fall flat on our face. So uh, I have said in other environments that when I was a kid, the worst thing, I loved baseball. And the worst thing that happened was not that we'd lose the game. It was that we only showed up with seven players and the town had kind of a strict rule that you couldn't oh. play if you only had seven players. So we'd have to forfeit. I don't like forfeits. So there's a big part of the shoe industry that's priced below uh, $200. And it's very hard for us to sell shoes that cost under $200. So we do them in the DR. Uh, it's our own plant. We manage the culture and the treatment of the employees. They love working with us. They're very engaged. And, um, you know, it's not like most shoe companies that go to mega plants in India and China and source from the same people as a, the competition and import yeah. from really low wage countries. So I'm hopeful that part of what we're doing by building employment in both countries is that we're keeping people happy in the country they live in rather than having people on boats trying to get into Florida. <laughs> yes, and it's probably not too bad visiting the Dominican Republic in the winter occasionally, too. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Although I've yet to go to the part where I've got friends who go down there to play golf, and I've never been to that part. I've only been to the city, Santiago. That's Punta Cana. That's the end of the island. I'm in the middle at a city that's uh, called Santiago. Interesting. All right, and... I know we're getting a little to the end of the interview here, but I got uh, two or three more questions. Um, okay. One is, uh, you know, what would you do differently if with uh, at Allen Edmonds if you know if you if uh, you if you were presented with another turnaround? Um, I mean, it sounds like you handled it quite well, but uh, you know, would there be things that you would have done differently if you do it again next time? Well, I love music and. Uh... I'm the uh, guy who's got song lyrics stuck in his head every time, uh, <laughs> free association. So I think the uh, the thing that comes to mind is Frank Sinatra's famous song, My Way. You know, regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. Um, you know, we did do some things in product that didn't work, that which we'd done differently, but, you know, Product development, like any kind of creative process, is never a straight line. You, you don't bat a thousand in product development. Uh, if you do, you're not stretching yourself. So uh, I often say that creativity is like skiing. If you're not falling down now and then, you're not getting any better. So um, <laughs> I, 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 I'd be hard pressed to say something major that I wish we hadn't done. Um, nor is there something that I wish we had done. I think we uh, we really knew what we were about, where we were going, and, and uh, with a great team, it's amazing how well things have gone so far. Interesting. And and that probably speaks to some of the, well, the team you had around you and your experience just over many years being a part of so many different, you know, from the outside looking in, different companies, what works, what doesn't. Um, and, and and I was curious about, the, you mentioned the product development. You know, how, how do you test? You know, it's easy when you're on the Internet you know, you can throw up a web page and see how the response rate is. But with a shoe, how do you kind of roll out a new shoe and test it to see if there's interest or not? 
Well, a couple of deeper um, layers to that question. One, I get also asked all the time why we don't do focus groups, and there are a lot of studies that are done that focus groups actually behave differently when they know they're in a focus group than they would if they were out in the marketplace or in their homes. So you don't get very accurate information when you bring 15, 20 people together and say, what do you think of this, what do you think of that? Um, you're much better off understanding it out in the real world. And the focus group strategy occurred back in the days when there was no Internet, there was no direct uh, social media connection with people. So now what we're doing much more systematically, and we're going to continue to develop this, is put things out there in the real world, both by testing in certain stores, by putting them on our website, and seeing how people react to them. And then ultimately, I want to start sending emails with two core customers, but a lot of them, you know, yeah, hundreds yeah. of them, saying, would you buy this shoe? Do you like this shoe? What don't you like about this shoe? If you had two things you could change on this shoe, what would they be? And um, we're working on that level of customer interaction. And, um, and because of your how your supply chain is... Uh, so local I mean you guys can just do that kind of A-B testing and if something doesn't work out it's not a huge deal whereas <laughs> for other folks it's just a, they can't uh, um, test as fast and change it up so yeah I can see that's that's smart yeah uh, we're not we're not totally immune from from introducing something and finding out that it didn't work now that right. we've got almost 60 stores you know we put it in most of our stores you know, if it didn't work at all, we've got a lot of shoes that nobody likes to try to sell. So we've got to be <laughs> careful about that. But um, but we are able to, as I said earlier, to, to change on the fly. We can introduce something. As we did these sneakers uh, that just came out, first of all, everybody ought to look at them. They're much higher quality than what a lot of people are huh. put, putting on the market right now. And sneakers are the hottest thing in men's footwear um, in uh, even underdressed business suits these days. So it's good to have a pair. Um, but we decided we would do these uh, with existing soles and existing forms from the uh, the sole supplier that last, that uh, the existing last of the sole supplier who we picked, which was Vibram, one of the best rubber uh, sole suppliers in the world out of Italy. So, um, there, we, we just brought them out in one size because to do them in the multiple sizes that we're so well-known for would have required us to invest in new lasts and new sole dyes, and we didn't want to take that big a jump until we knew whether we could sell them or not. Now that we know they're selling, and we're getting criticized for not having the usual spectrum of widths that we have at Allen Edmonds, we're going to we're gonna make that investment. But, um, Interesting. I'll have to check yet. those out. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Cool. And yeah, they're called the Cheetah and the Brisbane. I'm wearing uh, – actually, I'm not wearing the Cheetah today. I was yesterday. Oh, no. Yeah, I bet you have a pretty good shoe, shoe collection. That, that'd be half the reason just to take that job. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so I got two questions, and you, you can you can choose which one uh, you want to answer here. One is a uh, um, little more little more on the personal side that we end, can end on is uh, what – what keeps you up at night, you know, around Allen Edmonds? And then, or the two, um, who are some of your, if you had some some key advisors when you started Allen Edmonds and even to this day? 
uh, and I'm going to pick one. I will pick the what keeps me up at night. All right, sounds good. <laughs> All right. Um, what what keeps me up at night? There's a big shift going on in both uh, how consumers buy products today. You know, we would call it retailing, but but it's really uh, it's morphing into something completely different than what retailing has ever been for hundreds of years. I mean, retailing used to mean you would go to a store look at something they had it in a uh in their inventory in the back and would bring out your size and you buy it at a cash register and walk out the whole thing is changing so drastically now the form of the way people pay the environment they're in when they make a purchase it's more and more frequently happening when they're on the road when they're by themselves when they're in their office so uh you know we anytime things change that rapidly uh, you can get pushed aside if you're not uh, if you're not in it just like I talked about earlier our commitment to getting get into e-commerce in the first place was quite unpopular if we hadn't I know I don't know where we'd be today so uh, so getting that right keeps me awake and then um, changing attitudes about what men should wear uh, you know the blue suit isn't going away but it's getting worn a lot less often and at first we we um, we're able to sustain significant growth at this company because guys were shifting from black shoes to brown shoes and adding more shoes to their closet. But there's kind of a pause right now in uh, what's going on with men's fashion in footwear, uh, tectonic plate shift that that uh, keeps me up at night because we got to be on top of it. So I'd say those two things that major revolution in retailing and the uh, change in fashion that's probably the biggest change since I got here is going on right now. Huh. Yeah, that's enough to keep you up at night. And and hence yeah. why hence why the sneakers or to try out Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Right. Interesting. All right. Well, this has been a uh, wonderful so definitely appreciate your uh, time and your uh, knowledge, Paul. And uh I learned a lot and I'm sure uh the audience has, has learned a lot as well, so I appreciate it. You're welcome, Dave. I enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for asking me. Definitely, and uh, and thanks, everyone, for listening to another uh, Flyer Labs podcast, and uh, we'll see you next time.